You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, everyone, well, welcome. I can see, feel it. The weather gets nicer. There's, there's a mathematical equation that says when the weather gets better, you know, People go to the beach. <laughs> the people come online. They come on Zoom. Yes. Uh, that's okay. Um, it's good to see everybody here tonight. And we are carrying on in our journey through the Beatitudes. We'll make it to the end. We only have uh, a few more to go. Uh, tonight, we have our uh, special guest with us. We have uh, Anthony Toes. Some of you will know Anthony. Some of the guys will know because we've had a men's breakfast. Yeah. And Anthony has spoken at the breakfast. And uh, Anthony has uh, been part of the church for his whole life, and uh, and it's great. It's great. I uh, it's great to have him here. I, I work with his brother, and I'm friends with his parents. So there you go. And, and lots of family. Yeah, lots of family. So why don't we get started? I'm going to pray, and then we'll segue into our beatitude tonight. Okay, let's pray. God of grace, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. I lift up uh, your servant Anthony to you tonight, and I pray that you would speak to him and through him and guide our conversations tonight and help all that we learn tonight, not just to be information, not to be just interesting things, but we do pray that uh, we would press in and that you would change our hearts. And so we commit tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. So, hello, uh, my name is Anthony, as David said. Um, to know something about me at the very least, uh, I'm training to be a teacher right now I'm in my last few months, uh, and I'm currently skipping class to be here. Uh, so if anybody knows anything about quantitative approaches to environmental education, please come and speak to me after. I, I need some help at this point. Um, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here to talk to you about mercy today. Um, and as David always says, I am a fellow sojourner with you on this process. Um, I, as we try to understand the Bible and learn how it applies to our lives, um, I'm just a little bit of reading um, beyond you this week. Uh, and uh, I've been reading, I've been having conversations um, about this verse, and I still don't know all the answers, um, but I'm working to understand it, and I hope you can join me in this process. Uh, and today is my first time teaching here on, on one of David's classes and online. And um, yeah, uh, it's fortunate that we're doing Mercy this week, because if any of you say anything critical after the class, you failed the test and, uh, you know, it, we'll, we'll go from there. Um, but before we look at uh, Mercy specifically, I want to place Mercy in the larger context of the Beatitudes. And so we're going to do the same thing we did a couple of weeks ago and that we did on Sunday a couple of weeks ago, where um, you're going to try to say the second half of the Beatitudes. So I'm going to read through the Beatitudes and you are going to try to recite without looking in your Bible. You can close your Bibles for a second uh, and you're going to try to recite the second half. It's going to sound a bit jumbled because of translations, but we're going to try our best. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord Jesus, help us to understand what these words mean and how they apply to us today. Help us to see your mercy and to respond with mercy. Reveal yourself to us this evening. Amen. Okay. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I don't know about you, but when I hear the Beatitudes or read the Beatitudes, I often focus on the ones that either I don't understand or have debated meanings. Um, I'll show up for a week on the poor in spirit. Uh, I'm curious about the mourners, uh, and I want to learn more about the meek. But mercy, we, we all know mercy. Uh, mercy isn't novel. It's not new. We talk and sing about it every week at church. And you know what? While the first few characteristics of the Beatitudes, or of the kingdom, they seem odd, uh, are upside down, mercy uh, kind of seems right side up. It kind of makes sense, or at least it ought to for Christians. But what does it mean to be merciful? And I was reading about that this week and, and thinking about that or in the previous weeks. And um, as it turns out, there's a lot more to mercy than I had previously thought. And so today we're going to look at how mercy fits into the Beatitudes, what it is to be merciful, and how we can become merciful. And then a little bit later on, uh, we're going to go through, uh, tell the story of uh, a woman named Cori Tenbu, uh, who has a great picture of what it is to be merciful. But first, I want to do a quick reminder of what the Beatitudes are all about. Uh, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is beginning his public ministry by painting a picture of what human flourishing in his kingdom looks like. He said, my kingdom is at hand, and the people who inhabit my kingdom, this is what they look like. This is who, this is what they are become. He's saying that gospelized or in sync or kingdomized people develop these traits. As we follow Jesus, as we seek his kingdom, as we're in proximity to him, we will become kingdomized people to live in this state of being is for us to flourish. And so we can say, blessed are, or fortunate are, or you lucky bums, or I'm going to say, flourishing are the merciful, because they, and only they, shall receive mercy. So we'll start off with a discussion question for you, and for you online, Michael, take care of it. Um, what comes to mind when I mention mercy? Just at a really basic level, um, what do you associate mercy with? 
and what questions arise when you think of mercy. So what comes to mind? And maybe you were there on Sunday and you remember what Sam said. If you can recall it, feel free to share that too. Um, so I'll give you a couple minutes, a few minutes to discuss that, and then we'll come back in a second. Yeah, I don't. I'm good now. Um, okay. We will bring it back now. Um, so what comes to mind? What, uh, what do you associate mercy with? Who do you associate mercy with? Maybe some people in the room. Right? Compassion. Yeah. Forgiveness. Kindness. Like acts of mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the people online, it looks like, um, like uh, not giving someone what they deserve or giving someone something good that they don't deserve. Um, like a courtroom. Uh, forgiving someone uh, who's guilty for not dealing with the punishment, forgiving debts, Christians, that's a good association for mercy. I'm, I'm happy that's the case. Loving unconditionally. Yeah, all of these things. Um, good things to associate with mercy. And uh, I, I find when I think about mercy, I, I think about similar things. Um, but I also have some puzzling questions uh, when, I, when I read this verse. Um, it, it sounds a lot like merciful people are blessed because they receive mercy. So who are these people receiving mercy from? And do they have to be merciful in order to receive mercy? Like, do I need to earn it? Is it transactional? And we're going to address that a bit later, but I, I think it's a, a necessary question that we, we need to consider. Um, is Jesus saying that only people who are merciful receive mercy? And what exactly is the mercy that we're talking about? You know, we're talking around it, kind of. First, I, I want to look at how mercy fits in with the other Beatitudes. Where are we at in a bigger scheme here? Uh, and it seems like something changes. If you, if you read the Beatitudes closely, it seems like there's a shift, like something changes when you get to the fifth. Okay, so you, you read the first four Beatitudes, and you get to mercy, and something's a little bit different. And so I'm just going to give you 20, 30 seconds if you have your Bible in front of you or if you have the internet in front of you um, and try to figure out what, um, what do you think is different about the fifth? Like what, what changes, what do you notice? So I'll just give you 20, 30 seconds to have a, have a peek at that. Okay, so does anybody 
have the bravery to share what they just came up with right now. Anything that they saw. Online people, you can also put it in the chat. What is different about mercy when we get to the fifth beatitude from the first four? Yeah. Right. It's it's the first and the only beatitude that has something directly correlated with the blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Anything else? Yeah. That's good, Peter. Um, so one of the things uh, that I noticed in my study is that um, although various scholars, they, they split up or they parse the Beatitudes differently into different categories. Um, regardless of how they do that, it, it seems like everybody's in agreement that the fifth, there's something different, um, that there's something more active to mercy. So you have uh, blessed, are, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's something a little bit more internal. The mourners, it's a little bit more internal. You have uh, the meek, it's a little bit more internal. And then hunger and hungering, hungering and thirsting, it's something uh, like a desire, it's inside. But mercy, and Sam mentioned this on Sunday, mercy is, is one of the most measurable. It is active, it is out there. It's more external. Um, the kingdomized person is not only changed inside their heart, but also externally in the way that they relate to others. And this will be helpful when we consider what it truly is to be merciful, um, that mercy is far more than just an attitude or a feeling. And so even though there's a change at the fifth beatitude, there's something that shifts. Um, it's still very linked to the first, the first four. And so uh, Mike did this last week, and I appreciated it, uh, just to walk through how there's a sequence to the beatitudes, uh, that for those in the kingdom, we know that we bring nothing to the table. We're poor in spirit on our own. We can't accomplish anything that Jesus desires. We need his grace and love. And when we see our sin, when we see the brokenness of the world, we mourn. And from our mourning and our poverty of spirit, we develop an appropriate perspective on ourselves. We become humble. We become meek. In meekness and poverty of spirit, we start to focus on the things of God and not on the things of the world. We start to focus on righteousness and right relatedness. And when we seek righteousness and right relatedness, we inevitably become merciful. Uh, a scholar named Dale Bruner, he says, the gospel merciful are the understanding, which means the understanding, those who put themselves under others to support them, to be sensitive to them, even to feel sad with them. The gospel mercy seems to follow naturally from the first four. If you think about somebody who is merciful, um, think of someone who's poor in spirit and recognizes their own need, who mourns their own sins and the sins of the world, who's meek and humble, and, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and right relatedness. Those people, people who inhabit those traits, kingdomized people, will show mercy. But if we read the Beatitudes wrong as merely things that we're striving to achieve on our own strength, uh, or for our own morality, where we can just pick and choose this one, I want that one. Um, we won't become merciful people. 
Um, but if we take the Beatitudes as describing one person, one person who's becoming kingdomized, then mercy will naturally flow from the person who fits the description of the first four Beatitudes. And mercy is also a necessary follow-up to uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Seeking the kingdom of God without allowing for the king to modify our hearts and, and can produce an unhealthy righteousness. So, yeah. <laughs> if we are, we just like really want the righteousness of God, but if we don't allow him to change our hearts, if we don't have it, the first four, the first three Beatitudes, um, it'll lead to self-righteousness. And the reason I say this is because this is a part of my story. This is something that I've experienced. When I was younger, I was very self-righteous. I loved rules, um, but I also really was seeking the righteousness of the kingdom. Like I wanted that. I wanted, yeah, what was right. Um, but it also left me judgmental and hardened towards the sins of others. Um, I wanted to be successful. And as far as I understood it, that meant following the rules and um, living as I should as a Christian. And so I tried really hard at particular things, you know, stereotypical things. I didn't, I didn't swear. I didn't get drunk. And I tried to be really kind to the people around me. Um, but it was a performance. And um, I wasn't poor in spirit. This was all really hard work, this performing, doing things for Jesus because I thought that they were good things but I hadn't let Jesus change my heart. I would compare myself to other people in the church and I would, you know, um, I would see them sinning in ways that I didn't. So I'd be like, oh, they call themselves Christians and they're getting drunk on the weekends. They call themselves Christians and they aren't tithing properly. They, they'd spend their money on what? You know, it, 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 I would think of these people as lesser than myself while simultaneously like really thinking that I would, and, and I think, in some ways, genuinely seeking after the righteousness of God. Um, but internally, I still, I, I thought very poorly of these people. And sometimes I would tell them, I would say, hey, you shouldn't be living this way. Um, and, but when I said that to them, I, I kind of liked it. Like, I kind of liked being able to say to somebody else, you shouldn't be doing this because it made me feel even better about what I was doing because I was trying really hard. But there was no mercy. I had the zeal and the, and the desire for it, but there was no mercy in my voice when I talked to them. It would have been very helpful for me to hear these words of East Stanley Jones. Righteousness unmodified by mercy is a hard, unlovely, pharisaical, sour-visaged thing. But nothing is more beautiful than the countenance of righteousness when there glistens upon it the tear of mercy. The voice of Sinai saying, thou shalt not, must be tempered by the voice of Calvary saying, Father, forgive them. Kingdomized person both seeks the righteousness of God and due to their poorness in spirit, their mourning and their meekness is merciful toward others. In that process, maybe you were wondering, well, what if I see, you know, what if I see a friend, or what if I, you know, for me, like, what if I see Liam here sinning, he's, you know, um, gossiping, or he's treating his wife poorly, like, shouldn't I say something to them when they're doing something wrong? Uh, of course, we, we should be calling our brothers and sisters in Christ to live lives worthy of the gospel um, as an act of love. The way we go about calling somebody out matters. Um, it needs to be an act of love. 
So before calling a brother or sister out, I think it's helpful to do a quick self-inventory. Just coming right through. Not there we go. I, good. So before we call somebody out, quick self-inventory that we should do. Am I poor in spirit? Am I sorrowful for my own sin? Am I sorrowful for their sin? Am I mourning for their sin? Am I meek? Do I feel pity for their pain? If we're living in sync with the kingdom, we won't produce self-righteous correction. We will be able to do this in love. And we won't take the self-righteous, pharisaical attitude that I did as a teenager. If we are seeking both righteousness and mercy, we will have done well. Together, they're great. Jones continues to say here, but, but if righteousness needs the correction of mercy, then vice versa. Mercy needs the correction of righteousness. Mercy without righteousness is mushy. To be merciful toward the failings and sins of others without a moral protest at the heart of the mercy ends in looseness and libertinism. Either righteousness or mercy taken alone smells bad, but put together, there's the breath of a heavenly scent upon them. Kingdomized people don't pick and choose which Beatitudes apply to them. The Beatitudes are not a grab bag of characteristics, like I said earlier. As Jesus produces, produces righteousness and right relatedness in us, we will develop mercy. And together it smells beautiful. My self-righteous impulses eventually showed me that my attempts to follow the law without mercy brought me not closer to God's kingdom, but actually further away. It's a kingdom of mercy. Kingdomized people don't become self-righteous, but they develop a Christ-like mercy. And so, made it far. I've talked about a lot of things, but... What exactly is mercy? What is this thing that we're talking about? And in trying to understand it, when I was doing some study, I found that most of the commentary that I looked at all quoted the same scholar named Robert Gulick, uh, who has this where he says, mercy points in two directions. First, it's kindness shown to one in need. And second, it's pardon accorded to one in the wrong. Kindness shown to one in need and pardon accorded to one in the wrong. A lot of you nailed that earlier on the, the chat. Um, what does it mean to show kindness to one in need? Well, one author describes it as giving help to the wretched. So I want everybody to look at their most wretched neighbor beside them and give them, no. Um, but uh, give help to the wretched to relieve the miserable. Many consider it synonymous with compassion, which means to suffer with. But mercy in this context has more action to it. Kent Hughes says that we must never imagine that we are merciful because we feel compassionate towards someone in distress. Mercy means active goodwill, active goodwill. So in trying to understand this, I looked up all the times that Matthew uses um, that, that word for will be shown mercy. Um, all the times that it comes up in Matthew's gospel. And it turns out, it comes up a lot. So I want to look at some of them together. It's on the notes as well, if you want to follow along. Matthew 9, 27 says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, shouting, 
have mercy on us, son of David. Here, mercy is a request for healing. It's giving help to the needy. Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that area came and cried out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is horribly demon-possessed. Once again, mercy is a request for Jesus to relieve the woman's suffering at her daughter's demon possession. Matthew 17. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And here Jesus again rebukes a demon in mercy. And last one I have here, Matthew 20. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. These people weren't asking Jesus to have a feeling toward them. They didn't want Jesus to merely think well of them. They were all asking for Jesus to do something for them. They were run down, poorly treated, and miserable. And all they could do was ask for Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I, I think I've mentioned it, but there's an instructive piece for us here that mercy includes action. It can't be divorced from action. In all of these scenarios, Jesus's mercy was him healing and tangibly doing something for the downtrodden. And maybe this is obvious to some of you um, that mercy is actionable, but I'm focusing on it because when I was studying it, when I had previously thought about mercy, I realized I needed to shift the way that I'd previously understood it. Um, I used to think that mercy was only feeling bad for someone or forgiving them, uh, but it's much more than that. It includes tangibly alleviating suffering. to disadvantage mercy to them, whether it be a family member, a friend, a coworker, or a person on the street. Because honestly, most of the time when I see somebody in that situation, I feel bad for them. And I also don't really want to spend my time disadvantaging my time to go do something for them. Um, I find it terribly easy to walk away feeling bad for them, but doing nothing. That's not mercy. Mercy involves action. So I want us to have a little discussion. Uh, the questions here, it's on the sheet. What kinds of things can make it hard for you to show this kind of mercy, this active goodwill? Uh, what stops us from showing active goodwill to those in need? This can be personal reasons. This can be um, more structural level societal reasons um, why we don't show mercy. But what makes it hard for you to show this mercy where you're showing kindness to the poor? What, what, what makes that hard for us in life? Um, I'll give us a few minutes to discuss that, and then uh, we'll come back. Seems like the conversations are doing great right now, but we're going to bring it back in. Um, we're just answering the question, what kinds of things can make it hard 
for you to show this kind of mercy, uh, what stops us from showing active goodwill to those in need. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that uh, you talked about at your tables? What makes it hard for you uh, personally or at a societal level? Giving up personal time. Giving up our own time. Feel that. Fear of being taken advantage of. Yeah. Not, yeah, just what do I do with this? I don't know how I can help. Yeah. But the need is so great. It's just like, honestly, what difference is it going to make? Yeah. It's, there's too much. If I help this person, aren't I also obligated to help them and them and them? When it feels like justice, Right. They, they probably got themselves into this situation, right? That was their fault, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, either I don't have what it takes or somebody else will take care of it. You know, if you know the bystander effective, it's very powerful that we just assume if there's other people around, they will, they will do something, right? There's probably a reason why nobody else has stepped in to help this person, right? And, or even just in the church, honestly, like if a friend is sharing with me, you know, I have this challenging thing going on. Uh, I, you know, I don't always take responsibility. Sometimes it's thinking about it from a responsibility lens that makes it hard for me. I'm like, Am I responsible though, rather than what can I do to help you? Uh, and online, sorry, I didn't, uh, I didn't look at some of your things. Um, anger, hurt. anger, hurt, yeah. What are they gonna do with, with the money that I give them if it's money? Um, yeah, it's hard if I have to forgive them as well because it hurts somebody near to me. Uh, I find, you know, I resonate with all the things that you've shared and, um, and a bunch more. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, pretty consistently for the last little while um, is how easy it is for me to kind of silo myself away from encountering uh, people in need in the world. So on a like really basic level, I live in a nicer neighborhood and a basement suite. So the people in the neighborhood are doing okay. I can go to the store. I can go to school or work or whatever. I can kind of avoid the ways that force me to engage with people that might have need. Also, I might feel like it's unsafe maybe. Um, and then in the process, I just, I'm siloing myself. I spend more time online or even at a, at a really, like at a basic level with my friends or my family, like I said about um, responsibility. If I, what if I didn't do it though? Do I really have to? I think of it as almost like I was saying earlier with rules where am I mandated to rather than what can I do? And then and it can feel overwhelming. There's a lot. Um, and Sam, some, some of you kind of mentioned this and Sam mentioned it on Sunday, but in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, we don't know if the person got himself in that situation on their own. Like maybe the person who is beaten on the road does uh, sounds bad, but deserved it or, or did something to deserve that. And maybe they didn't. We don't know the answer to that question. And still the person has mercy on them. Um, but really for most of us, it's, it's busyness, isn't it? 
for me it is. It's uh, I have other things. I, I don't want, like, I want to be kind to the people that I've already made time commitments to. And I would say that, but then I don't plan things into my time to be merciful, right? If, I, if I'm going to, if I'm going to say, you know, it's, it's because of time, shouldn't I then plan my time to be merciful? It's easier than ever at a societal level, I think, to craft a world where we don't have to engage with suffering, where suffering is distant and not a responsibility. But this isn't the way of Jesus, and it doesn't describe a kingdomized person. Active goodwill doesn't just, uh, or it means not just responding to the person on the street in a stereotypical example, but it can mean purposely associating yourself with people in challenging situations. It means giving time to listen to other people's struggles. Um, and it doesn't always look, you know, at the scale of the Good Samaritan where he gives so much time and money and effort um, to serve this person. Um, it can be supporting people who are suffering non-economically, maybe from loneliness or mental health or other things of the like. Uh, but for some of you, mercy has and does look like something larger scale. As I was kind of developing this and, and thinking about what I was going to say in this section, um, I kept on thinking about an organization uh, that I, um, yeah, I've been thinking about a lot in the last few weeks uh, called Move In. Has anybody here heard of Move In? Okay, we're over. This is great. So um, uh, this, 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 it's an organization that encourages and motivates and equips Christians to move into neighborhoods of unreached urban poor and then to pray. So they would say, you know, for Keely and I, they would say, you should move and maybe another couple into a neighborhood that they've designated uh, has low income and is unreached with the gospel and is in a dense neighborhood, like in an urban area. And they would say, just go live there, go pray, go be the salt and light of the neighborhood. And there's no programs, there's no, nothing planned, but what they're trying to do is rather than coming in once a week and helping and then leaving, they integrate themselves into the neighborhood and the people's lives. And um, they, they suffer the challenges and they experience the joys of the neighborhood. And, and to me, this is a really inspiring vision of what it looks like to, to show mercy to people. Um, we have something to offer as Christians, right? We have the gospel. Um, and uh, I think it's just a small example of what a big picture of mercy can look like. Uh, and, you know, I, I like we haven't moved to, to somewhere. I haven't done this. I'm not a part of this. And for most of us, that's not what mercy looks like. Uh, for most of us, mercy is in, in, as act of goodwill is a much... Um, on a, on a different scale. Maybe it's with our family or our friends or our coworkers, something like that. For me, uh, one small example is um, during the summers, I'm a painter. Uh, and yeah, so I, I work for a company that has a lot of uh, immigrants and people new to Canada, challenges with language and culture. And um, there's a lot of times where, uh, you know, they get treated poorer by my coworkers because. They just kind of miss each other when it comes to um, yeah, various things and the way that we talk and stuff. And so I have a, I have a coworker specifically who I noticed most people really didn't like. Uh, he's a bit, you know, the way he spoke is a bit crass and uh, it's just different for him. And he, he was just really lonely, like just really lonely here. And so uh, people really didn't want to, you know, ever spend time with him. They try to actively avoid working beside him. Um, but I took it as an opportunity to have lunch with him every 
every day. So we just I'd set it up. So we take break at the same time. We get to chat. And just by doing that for like two summers, uh, he, he calls me his best friend. And that's not me being like, I'm the savior. I'm coming in here. Um, but there's a need. He's looking for somebody here. And um, yeah, and now I get the chance to still see him throughout the year and, and connect with him. And um, It's a blessing to me as well. And so that's just a small example for me. But I know that many of you do this kind of stuff. You give your time, your resources, your energy um, to causes of mercy. You will receive mercy. You are flourishing. You are living into and experiencing the kingdom of God. You lucky bums. You will receive mercy. So we've talked about mercy as kindness to the suffering. That's the, the first part of it. But the second half is mercy is also pardon for someone in the wrong. And here, I'm going to take the angle of forgiveness. Mercy is forgiveness. Now, I know forgiveness may seem like a pretty basic, you know, it's a basic part of Christianity, and we talk about it often. Um, and so for me, it's easy sometimes to glaze over it. Uh, but the reason that we talk about it often and, and stuff is because it's so essential to what we believe. Uh, consider the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Receiving and giving mercy, or, or and giving forgiveness, mercy, is essential to our faith. But even though it's essential, even though it's super basic, I found it hard at times. Just because it's essential doesn't mean that it's easy. Um, and, and I know like maybe some of you have experienced close friends or family who have hurt you in ways that make it very, very challenging for you to forgive them. I think I can probably safely assume that many of you have experienced hurt in ways that I can't imagine. And I won't claim to understand what you've experienced and how hard it is for you to forgive. But I will appeal to Jesus. He does understand and he does know what you've experienced. And he has experienced um, that kind of intense pain and hurt. He had the weight of all the sins of the world on his shoulders. And still he had mercy on us, even though he didn't deserve it. The same Jesus that's experienced that, he sees you and he knows you. And he understands where you're at. He's the one who gives us strength to forgive in even the most challenging of circumstances. Our deepest forgiveness will not come because of some strategy or trying harder, but it'll only come through Jesus, the one who is mercy. Now, I want to walk you through a story of forgiveness. Uh, a story of Corey Ten Boom. Uh, I'm just curious, how many people here know who Corey Ten Boom is? Okay, so quite a few of us. Well, we're going to do it anyway. It's it's a very nice story. Um, Corey was a, a Dutch watchmaker in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, and she. This is a random fact, but she was actually the first licensed female watchmaker in the Netherlands. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty good. Um, at the time, uh, yeah. World War II started happening, and um, the Germans invaded the Netherlands, and they hunted down anyone who was Jewish. And uh, Corey believed that all people had value in the sight of God. And so um, she started to hide Jewish people in her house and started to facilitate a network of hiding people to be safe from the Nazis. 
Uh, it even got to the point where she had architects come in and kind of create a whole place in her house that couldn't be discovered so that the people can live, uh, the Jews could live and survive within the house. And when the Gestapo came and kind of looked at all the places that normally would be trap doors, they wouldn't find it. So she was doing this for a while. She started the Dutch underground resistance movement um, and she ended up saving nearly 800 lives in the process. But eventually she was caught and uh, with 30 other people was arrested and uh, most of them were released pretty soon after. Uh, but her father and her and her sister Betsy um, were taken to a concentration camp. Her father died pretty soon after, but her and her sister Betsy ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. It was all women there. In the camp, um, she faced like as horrendous as circumstances as you can come up with. You, um, many of you know some of the circumstances, but um, just terrible exploitation and terrible, um, yeah, pain physically and mentally and um, all the different things. Despite that, even with people kind of dying all around them, Corey and Betsy started a Bible study in the camp where they would preach the word of God to um, the other woman and, and try to provide hope in this place that it feels like there could be no hope. Uh, and in the times when, when, when Corey found it really challenging to have faith in God, and she was like, how could God do this? Her sister Betsy was the place where God would speak through Betsy to be like, no, you've got to keep, you've got to keep, you know, the good fight um, and encourage her to continue on. But eventually Betsy became sick. And yeah, throughout this whole process of Betsy being sick, Corey was really honest with God. She, you know, she would say, she yelled at God, why would you leave us in prison so long? Why should Betsy suffer like this? Will you never rescue us? She later wrote, my soul was a battleground of a struggle between light and darkness with joy for Betsy's release or grief for my own loss when the battle. And then she prayed, teach me, Lord, to bear the burden in this dark and weary day. Let me not complain to others of a hard and lonely way. Every storm to thee is subject, storms of earth or mind and heart. Only to thy will submitting can to me thy peace impart. So to suffer, so keep silence, so be yielded to thy will, so in weakness learn thy power. Teach me, Father, teach me still. Eventually, Betsy died, and leaving Corey in the camp alone uh, and with diminishing hope. Uh, yet she continued to ask God for strength and teach the woman there about God. Um, she was soon reminded of the character of God, that he is uh, filled with tenderness. And that's the message that she started to share with the woman, that through Jesus, God also suffered and he's filled with tenderness for you. After Betsy's death, Corey's name was called in a loudspeaker, not her number, her name, and she was released from the camp. She went back to the Netherlands for a bit, the war ended, and then she started a rehab center for concentration camp survivors. The part of the story that I want to focus on comes after the war. I'm going to read a portion from her book because I think it's best communicated in her voice. And that's what you have on your notes if you care to follow along. It was a church in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. 
People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had to be, had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I still stood, and, and still I stood there, with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The, the current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. It's, it's a powerful story I found. And so I wanna just give you an opportunity, uh, have a short discuss discussion, our last one here. Um, how does this story sit with you? What feelings arise when you hear this story? What questions come up? And maybe if you want, can you recall a time when you found it challenging to show forgiveness? Um, can you recall a time when someone showed you forgiveness like this? So I'll give you a couple minutes to discuss this within your groups, uh, and then we'll come back. Okay, so does anybody here in the room have any thoughts that they want to share or first like feeling after um, 
hearing that story again, maybe, or for the first time. Um, any thoughts? Yeah? Totally. Yeah. 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 Any other thoughts? Yeah. Right. Yeah, relying on him to provide that, the desire or the will. Totally. He also said that the longest way harder Yeah. Yeah, the longer you wait, the harder it is, he said. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's the end of the forgiveness is when you do it the first time. And sometimes you have to continue to forgive when that bitterness comes up. I can't imagine, you know, when she thinks about her sister Betsy again, that it'd be easy for her to not have bitterness come up against uh, a person like this again. I, I personally have found this really instructional for me. Um, and especially that, and I think Kevin might've mentioned this here, but um, for, for Corey, mercy started with God's mercy toward her. Um, it's with God's act of mercy towards us and forgiving our sins that we can start to somehow show mercy toward others. The people who mourn and are poor in spirit do so because they recognize their need for God's mercy. And I can't speak for all of you, but I know for myself, the times when I'm most merciful toward others are the times that I am most aware of God's mercy to me. When, I, when I'm aware of that, I feel like I can walk around and forgive anybody of anything. Um, but it, it's when I, yeah, it's when I spend more time not thinking of that and in the world uh, that I, I forget and I, I can be um, slow to forgive. Okay, awesome story, but we still have to answer the question, what does it mean that only the merciful would be shown mercy? Is God saying that I need to earn my mercy by being merciful? No. The Christian life begins with mercy, begins with God's mercy and grace towards us. The Beatitudes only make sense when we put them, uh, when we recognize that Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom. Um, the offer is first put out by God. Jesus was inviting the people at the Sermon on the Mount to come partake in this kingdom. It's an invitation. Uh, you know, Sam on Sunday mentioned the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in that story, we see that first, the man who, who doesn't end up giving mercy is shown mercy by the king. That's something that we also experience. We first are shown mercy by God. But then there's something that follows. We ought to show mercy in turn. Um, Dale 
Brunner again puts it this way. The fullness of received mercy exists to be passed on, not stored up. Once God has delivered mercy to believers, God intends that believers hand this mercy on to others. Being a merciful, forgiving, or loving person is not a condition for God's grace, but it is a necessary consequence of God's grace. If we don't recognize the mercy that God has shown to us and his son Jesus, we won't turn around and act in mercy. And, and if we aren't living lives full of mercy, it's clear that we're not living in the reality of the kingdom. And so there's a funny paradox and attention here where God shows us mercy. And if we, if we receive it, we naturally will start to show mercy to others. And, and it also says that if we show mercy, we will receive mercy. It sounds lovely. Like that's a good cycle to be in. But I think if we, if we don't receive it, uh, there's questions, if, you know, and if we don't show mercy, maybe we've never received mercy. Um, so I think this means that the starting point for showing mercy is experiencing mercy. Um, and so what happens if we don't show mercy to others? If, if only the merciful are shown mercy, what happens to Christians who don't show mercy? I, I think it's tricky here, and I'd acknowledge that, but I don't know if there are Christians who don't show mercy. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we are constantly forgiving everybody immediately for things that they've done. It doesn't mean that we, you know, are dedicating our entire lives to just serving the poor. Um, but, but I think we need to pause here and think about how being a Christian and, and showing mercy interact. Uh, Ken Hughes says that th this beatitude begets two tasks. And when I read this the first time, I, you know, really had to take a deep breath afterwards because they're very challenging tests. The first one is that if we have no mercy toward those who are physically and economically in distress, we are not Christians. This isn't saying that we become Christians by showing mercy to the unfortunate, but that believers show mercy to the unfortunate. If we remain passive or impassive or callous to human need and refuse to do anything about it, we need to take a good long look at ourselves and see if we're really believers. In 1 John 3.17, it says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? And so I think it's a, it's a true challenge to hear this. Um, but these are important words that Jesus cares about how we treat others. That's the first test. The second test is this. If we refuse to exercise mercy by extending forgiveness, we are not Christians. He goes on to say, if we refuse to be merciful, there's only one reason. We have never fully grasped the grace of Christ. But fortunately, when God's grace comes into our hearts, it makes us merciful people. We can't help but show mercy to others. Now, I think we need to qualify the statement a little bit. Saying, you know, if we refuse to exercise mercy by extending forgiveness, we are not Christians. Uh, to qualify it, I'd say this warning is not for those people who find that bitterness and hatred comes back even after forgiving someone. If you forgive one someone and you continue to forgive them, you're on the right track. We may have to forgive someone continually throughout our lives, 70 times, seven times. 
Jesus says. 490 times is a lot of times. But that's almost a little bit freeing to know that we, if, the, if that bitterness comes back or the anger comes back, we can forgive again. We have the strength to do that, and that's okay. Feelings of bitterness cropping up in our hearts is not a sign that you're an unbeliever. In fact, continuing to forgive is actually a sign that you are a believer. If you continue to forgive a family member or a friend who has wronged or continues to wrong you, God bless you. You lucky bums. You will be shown mercy. This warning is for those who have no desire to forgive, who, who they, just, they just don't care anymore. They don't care about the person. They don't care to forgive them. Um, and if you don't care about people, if you don't care about others, can you really be a Christian and not care about people? Is that, is that possible? If, if you've been recently hurt and you're still processing what happened and you haven't been able to forgive yet because you just need time still to process, it's, this isn't about, this, this isn't for you. This isn't applying to you. This is for people who haven't forgiven and won't forgive. For the ones who have closed their hearts off to the possibility of forgiveness. That probably felt like a lot. Uh, to me, it feels heavy because those are really hard truths to swallow for myself or for people that I know. Um, and so there's a, quite, there's a chance that that was discouraging for you. And maybe you feel inadequate. Maybe you feel like you want to be merciful, but you can't do it on your own. Sounds a lot like you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe like me, you feel like I'm, I'm merciful sometimes, but I want Jesus to produce mercy in me more. You know, I say to myself, yes, Jesus has produced mercy in me, but sometimes I find it challenging to forgive. And sometimes, you know, I, I just want to distance myself from having to help other people. Well, fortunately, there is someone who can help us. We know a God who in his very nature is merciful, a God who sees us and sees our hearts who sees us desiring mercy and right relatedness. And he says, blessed are you. You will be satisfied. You will be shown mercy. With all that being said, what does this mean for us practically? Like, where do we go from here? What are the next steps? I'm going to give three simple, very simple things. First, confess your sin before God. We come before God and we say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus exalts these people. Our mercy starts with us receiving his mercy, recognizing our need for his mercy. Ask him to help us. Ask him to help you receive his mercy, to become merciful. Ask him to change your heart because he will. That's one, confess our sins before God. Two, read and meditate on passages of scripture that are about mercy. So read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Meditate on it. Meditate on the mercy of Christ. Find ways to remind yourself of the mercy that he has shown you each day. Um, go to the back of your Bible. Look at the thing that has, you know, where each word is found. Find mercy. Go read all the, all the passages. Um, I find that, I said this earlier, like the less I dwell on God's mercy, the less merciful I am. And so the more that I do receive it, that I think about it. And for me, it's a thing every morning. I want to be able to wake up. And I, I've been trying this. Wake up and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help me to show mercy to other people. 
So one, confess your sin before God. Two, read and meditate on passages of scripture about mercy. And three, go out and be merciful. This is an active thing. Willingly forgive people who have wronged you. Intentionally come alongside people who are hurting you. And recognize how beautiful it is that you will be blessed. That you will be shown mercy. And so to conclude, uh, I realize many of you were probably here on Sunday and Sam did this. Uh, but some of you may have missed Sunday and some of us have more than one person to forgive. So I'm going to walk you through an exercise again. Um, here's a second chance to try this. So I'm going to ask you all, if you're willing to close your eyes with me, try not to fall asleep. You know, it's been a while. Close your eyes. And I want you to picture that you're at the bottom of a hill, a really nice green grassy hill, got dandelions and other things on it. And I want you to look up the hill, physically tilt your head up, look up and see Jesus at the top of the hill on the cross. Now I want you to slowly walk up the hill, walk up to the foot of the cross. And I want you to look up and see Jesus on the cross. I want you to say, Lord, have mercy on me. And in doing so, receive his mercy, receive his forgiveness. Feel his love, receive his mercy. And I want you to, to look back down, to turn around. And I want you to look down the hill. And I want you to picture someone who you find it really hard to forgive. Maybe since Sunday, um, bitterness has come up again and you need to forgive someone again. I want you to walk down the hill. I want you to take their hand and walk back up the hill. And when you get to the top of the hill, I want you to look over at the person that you're walking by. And then look up at Jesus on the cross and say, Lord, have mercy on them. Forgive them. And then I want you to walk back down the hill. Father, have mercy on us. Thank you, Father, for the mercy that you have shown to us. Thank you that you showed us mercy in dying for our sins, even though we didn't deserve it. I thank you that you're merciful in your very character, and we get to experience that every day, that in all situations, we can rest in your mercy. But Lord, we are weak, and we need your help to show mercy, to become people who show mercy. So we ask that you give us strength, strength to forgive our brothers and sisters, strength to show help to those who are in need. Lord, help us to receive your, your mercy and to give justice freely. Lord, we love you. In your name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.